Product managers give 100% of themselves to their customers. But who's there for the PM? The Product Management Center at the University of Washington. It's a global hub for knowledge, community, and impact. I'm Jeff Schulman, founding director of the Product Management Center and your host on this show, How to Succeed in Product Management. Each week, I'm joined by my co-host, Red, and some of the best product managers in the business. Together, we're having candid conversations that help you understand the challenges that a product manager faces, how they overcome them, and the tools and frameworks that will help you thrive in the role. So let's start the show. Welcome, everybody. My name is Jeff Schulman, and I am a professor at the University of Washington, and I am the founding director of the Product Management Center, which is a global hub for knowledge, community, and impact. And one of the impacts that we're hoping to have is to enrich the lives of PMs every week here on how to succeed in product management. And every week, we take a different topic to dive deeper into. And today's topic was proposed by our distinguished guest, a VP at Peloton, and the topic is storytelling. So I'm going to steal a little bit of Sumeya's thunder and get into why storytelling is something that all of you should listen to. But before I do that, Red, tell them how they can engage in today's conversation and tell them a little bit about yourself. It's been so long since we've put the spotlight on you. Absolutely. Well, first of all, if you're here today, buckle up and get ready for a wild ride. Or if you're a Pelotoner, strap on those shoes. I don't think people actually say Pelotoners. Clearly, I'm a Luddit. But this is a recorded conversation, so forever people will know that is what I said. And guess what? Later today, if you want to get involved and ask a question, we'll have room at about 4.30 PST for you to jump on in here and ask questions. Now, if you're someone who's shy or if you can't make it, guess what? We also have a Slack channel where you can get involved. And uh, Samea, while you haven't been here, I haven't been together with you in a month. Guess what? We are 959 members in our Slack group. That's right. Incredible. So here's what we're going to do. The reason we keep growing is we record this and put it out as a podcast. So Jeff said, who's Red? I'm one of the founding advisors for the Product Management Center. And all I care about is growing awareness around what the Product Management Center does for PMs around the world. So almost every day now, people listen to the podcast, How to Succeed in Product Management, and ping me on LinkedIn. Red, can I get into the Slack group? Or they tweet me. I've even seen one carrier pigeon, or maybe that was just yes, I was waiting things. for the carrier pigeon. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to fax me, if you want to drive up and just say, hey, Red, get me that Slack, just hit me up. I'm very easy to find on the internet. Red Russack, I'm welcome to the group. So tonight's going to be a great show. Back to you, Jeff. All right. Thank you, Red. Carrier pigeon gets me every time, but I like the drive through now. So people could, wherever they find you, drive on up and say, hey, hook me up with that Slack invite. Anyway, so today we have a VP from Peloton, and he proposed storytelling. And every week I call on Sumeya to tell the listeners why the, today's topic is important, why the day's topic is important for everybody. But I'm really glad that Ariel came up with this topic because we are launching a product leadership cohort program at the University of Washington's Foster School of Business. We're working with several companies to bring their product leaders from four to 10 years of experience and help them get to the next level. And in designing this program, I interviewed dozens of product managers and about a dozen product executives. And a theme that came across time and time again is that storytelling is critical to advancing in your product management career, to getting from that, you know, you're doing a good job at four to 10 years, but getting to that next level where you start managing product managers and really creating futures that don't exist. So I'm really excited about storytelling. Sumeya, 
Tell us a story. Ooh, I just came up with that on the fly. I don't know if I get, uh, I'm making myself laugh. Anyway, (laughs) tell us a story, Sumea, a little bit about yourself and why storytelling is important. I love this. You know, one of the most important parts of storytelling is to really focus on the why. So I'm glad we're going to talk about why here to start up the conversation. I think storytelling and leadership are tightly coupled. So if you want to be a leader in any way, which product management is a leadership position, even if you're an individual contributor, in that case, storytelling is a really important tool in your toolkit. It's an important characteristic. And the longer you practice it, the more it becomes part of just who you are. And I think for product managers, as they're growing in their careers, when they're thinking about the soft skills, everything beyond, you know, writing stories, which, by the way, also have a story element there. Everything beyond that, I think, requires storytelling because you're trying to influence people, you're trying to lead, and you're trying to create a change that requires a lot of people to align to it. So I'm excited about this topic, Jeff. I think it gets overlooked sometimes when we get super technical about product management, but the more senior or the more advanced in product management people become, the more it becomes obvious when someone has that as a gap in their skill set or not. All right. Thank you, Samaya. It's great to have you here. And the second benefit of storytelling as the topic is how many puns on telling us a story can we have in one episode? Ariel, tell us your story and the story behind why you recommended storytelling for today's conversation. That sounds great. Thanks, everybody. Um, I really want to start with Once Upon a Time, which I feel like is the traditional way most stories start. But maybe I'll do a little bit of my introduction about myself, and then I'll tell you a little bit about why storytelling was sort of the topic that really resonated with me. So my name is Ariel Dos Santos. I've been at Peloton for a little over eight months. I lead a product and technology team that's focused on corporal wellness, which is really about how we get Peloton in sort of as a benefit um, as part of sort of employers and health plans. So we're really focused at Peloton and how we make Peloton more accessible to different folks. If you hear sort of our CEO and founder talk about that, it's really sort of one of our core missions. And so corporate wellness is a great way for us to go do that. It's been really fun to sort of take something from, to build something from the ground up. Uh, it's sort of the kind of stuff I love is sort of the zero to one things. And prior to this, I was at Amazon for the last eight years where I worked both in our post-purchase experience space. So a lot of our order tracking, order history. If you've ever tracked the package on Amazon, my team probably worked on that at some point back in the day, which was really fun, really hard type of work, really sort of big scale. No one, someone was always upset. There were always issues um, because people's packages are going all over the world. And then I spent the second half of my time at Amazon working on Just Walk Out technology. So I worked as the head of product management for Amazon Go stores. And then I worked as our general manager of trying to get Just Walk Out technology um, commercialized and licensed to other companies, which was really fun. The sort of opportunity to sort of bring that technology to other retailers, which was a blast. For that, I was at Microsoft for a little bit, was in business school before that, and actually started my career in the nonprofit sector at this wonderful nonprofit called Year Up that actually is in has an office in Seattle for those that are in the Northwest, but it's sort of all over the U.S. And I'll start my storytelling piece there, which, you know, one of the things in that role as I was, you know, pretty early in my career. So we, I spent a bunch of time at this nonprofit and in that role, I really got a chance to learn what it looked like to lead from the ground up. And 
I learned from my bosses there just the importance of communication and telling stories uh, was the way I learned to communicate. It's sort of the way, you know, I think a lot of sort of the my sort of Latino background, I think we are we do a lot of storytelling in our culture and sort of in the Brazilian culture and sort of leveraging that as a strength. And it's been part of what I've continued to sort of build in my product career is especially as a non-technical product leader. I don't have a CS background. I didn't, you know, I had an international relations degree from college. And then I sort of started to sort of move into product management. And I think the reason I've been able to sort of navigate these roles has been primarily just the ability to sort of listen and then be able to tell stories about the things that we're trying to sort of go do. So that's why I was really wanted to talk about it today. All right. Thank you, Ariel. It's wonderful to have you here. We're going to get to Sumeya's favorite question. Sumeya, frameworks, any frameworks that you find are helpful for storytelling effectively? That's a really good question. One of my favorite books of all time is a book by Dan and Chip Heath called Made to Stick. And in their book, they have a framework around communications that you want to either stick or to to get the outcomes out of them that you want. And that's actually one of my favorite frameworks. It's called the Success Framework. And I recommend it for anyone who's interested to learn more. You know, success, the first S stands for simple. The U stands for unexpected. The C stands for concrete and, you know, relatable. The second C stands for credible. The E stands for emotional and the S stands for story. And this is a framework for storytelling and for communicating effectively. I know that the the S at the end can be sometimes confusing, but you can make a story or a mini story part of your overall storytelling, just like Ariel just did. He had a story, a mini story about the work he did at Amazon that fit within the larger context of the story he was telling us about his career. So I I love that framework. I recommend it. As with all frameworks, you'll notice over time that you're going to use one part more in one instance versus the other. And way above this framework are two questions that you want to answer first. Who is your audience always? And as people who focus a lot on user-centered design and on who is the customer and the user and what what problems are we solving for them, that's a no-brainer. Who is my customer? And the second thing is, what is the outcome I'm seeking? And then you take those two questions, answer them, and then you can use a framework of your choosing. The one I choose to use is the one from Made to Stick. Thank you, Sumeya. We can always count on you for frameworks. Have you used that framework or can you do you want to plus one that or are there other frameworks that you've used to help you story tell effectively? I love that framework, Sumeya. I actually wrote it down. I totally plus one. I think the especially the part about knowing your audience. I think as product managers, more so than most roles, we are talking to different audiences often several times in a day. So you may go from a meeting with your senior leadership to a meeting with your engineering team, to a meeting with designers, to a meeting with customers, and making sure you know what that audience needs to hear and what's important for them and how they want to receive that communication. So there's some times where I realize that for certain audiences, the best way for me to tell my story is to write it down beforehand and to tell people before we're in the meeting. Sometimes there's certain places where I realize I need to sort of use my ability to narrate verbally 
Some cases I need to sort of bring visuals to help tell the story. And so as Sumeya mentioned, the more you can start to be planned and very purposeful on what kind of story are you going to tell and to who are you going to tell, building those tools in your tool set allows you to sort of communicate information to different audiences at scale. The part that I tell, talk a lot about with the product managers on my team is I use this framework, which is my own made up framework. So it may hopefully make sense to others where I say there are times where you have to sort of be a lawyer and your job in that storytelling is trying to convince somebody like a sort of a point and you're really sort of trying to bring data and you're trying to say, I think we need to do A or I think we need to stop doing B. There are times where as a storyteller, you need to be what I call a detective and your job is to go gather a lot of information and go do research and understand what happened. And, you know, sometimes that happens as a result of an outage or an issue, or when you're trying to investigate a new space for your team. And so I think that detective hat is really important. And then third, sometimes you have to be the dreamer. You have to sort of go tell the story about that is about inspiring and getting people excited about a vision. And so I often use that kind of three personalities in different hats to help folks figure out how to think about storytelling and what hat they should be playing at that moment. I love, I love, love that. And Ariel, one of the things I think that's important to to also share is some of this requires practice. So I know we're talking frameworks here, but one of the questions that comes up in my conversations is, so how do I do this? How do I know that I'm being effective? And there is, you know, over time, I have found that there are four types of stories that we also tell. There is the elevator pitch, which to me is definitely an opportunity for storytelling. Anything from 30 seconds to three minutes comes under that category. And then the second one is about getting an external party, whether it's sales or investors to do something. There is a different kind of dance and story that you need to tell there. Then there is an internal story that you need to tell your teams, a story about who are we, what matters to us, what's our DNA, If we're going through difficult times, these are all conversations that are not necessarily visible to people on the outside. What does that mean to all of us? The why, the impact. And then the fourth story is the story that, you know, we have a little more time, we tell it, and we want to get, I'm thinking again of the startup world, we want to get other people who are, for example, users to believe in it. You know, that story, for example, of our startup started in a garage. Our startup started because we faced this pain and people just, it resonates with them. So those are the four types of stories usually I think about. Do you come across any one type of story more often than not, Ariel? Those are great. I think the stories that I see a lot is just stories that are sort of helping frame why we're working on something. Um, So a lot of my focus with, you know, the roles that I've been on is helping people understand why we are taking on an extra, you know, this new initiative or why we're building this feature for customers. And that is where I spend most of my energy, less sort of the founding stories. I think that's part of it too, but I think most of a lot of PMs end up being explaining the why. And I remember this as one of my first days at Amazon and I had this amazing, incredible boss who I'm still very close with today. And she asked me to do a presentation very early on to a very big audience of people. 
And I was very nervous, which I think she could tell. But then she told me, she said, Ariel, after the presentation, you have to go ask three random people in the audience the things they took away from what your presentation is and what things you did well and what things you didn't. And I sort of thought it was a joke. Like it was like, just, you know, you should do it and like try your best. But she literally found me after my presentation. She's like, okay, who are the three people? And it was a very uncomfortable, vulnerable thing to do. But it helped me so much to start getting comfortable with asking people, hey, was that helpful? Did that land? Like, what did you take away? Because oftentimes as a storyteller, one of the really hard things is you don't know if your stories landed. You may not have time for feedback. And so being comfortable asking people what they took away is a really helpful sort of skill to develop so you can improve your storytelling over time because it is not a skill that you check the box and you're done building. It is something I think we will all be working on forever is because different organizations need different stories, different projects, and being really comfortable with asking people how it's going and how it landed, I think is a really way to sort of supercharge that power within product managers. All right. We are having a conversation with Sumeya and Ariel, VP at Peloton, Ariel, and then a product executive at VMware. Sumeya, you know her well. And we're talking about storytelling. And uh, we just shared a couple frameworks. One framework I want to add, Sumeya and Ariel, and see if you've uh, used it as well, is one, I think, question as you're telling a story is, who is the protagonist? Who is the main character? And from what I understand, we want the customer to be the main character, a customer-centric vision and really bringing to life what is the customer putting them at the center of the story. And then the situation complication resolution framework. So really saying, what is the customer trying to do? Why are they trying to do it? Why does it matter? That's the situation. The complication is you know, what's preventing the customer from achieving their goals. And we want to make sure we get to the root cause of what's stopping them, but also make sure we have evidence of, you know, something is stopping them from achieving their goals that are important to them. And then the resolution, what do we want to build? What do we want to prioritize to be able to address the situation and make the customer better off? What does success look like? So Mayor Ariel, have you ever used that either by name or something similar to that? It sounds, Jeff, very much in line with the success one. The one you brought up, I think, is one I, I learned even back in college, just as as part of, I think, a moth uh, storytelling thing that I did. I like it. I think you still need that arc. So everything you mentioned about the framework definitely works. The reason I prefer the success one, because it breaks that down further. So what does protagonist mean? What other characteristic do you do you want to create? Like, for example, the emotional aspect. You want to get some emotions out of the listener or you want something to resonate, whether or make them laugh or make them sad or concerned. So those are things that don't necessarily come up in the simple framework. But yeah, that's my take on it. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes, you know, simplicity gets us off the ground and gives us a, a framework that's better than not thinking through a simple framework. But then, uh, yes, if we could dive deeper into how do we really get that emotion. And then, Ariel, I want to turn to you. What are some mistakes we've seen as people either fail to get, you know, the emotional investment or they fail to get an understanding of who is the main character and what is the challenge? So what are some of the mistakes that you've seen as people storytell? Yeah, that's great. Question, Jeff. And, you know, probably the the first one that comes to mind is that um, there's a, a 
often a perception that if you are telling a story, it means you have to talk more than everybody else. And you are the the sort of narrator in that. But actually, that's probably one of the more common mistakes I see is part of storytelling is giving space for people to react and to ask questions to it. And so a lot of, you know, when I'm thinking about having to tell stories at work is oftentimes I'll start with like big open questions. And part of my storytelling is to getting other people to participate and to sort of uh, be part of the story with me. And so one of the common mistakes I see is just storytelling being, okay, I'm going to talk for 27 minutes and then I'm going to give everybody three minutes to react, which you just, once again, not sort of acknowledging your audience, not understanding what they need out of that room. And you really have to sort of, as Sumeya mentioned before, you have to know your audience. And that probably ties to the second common mistake, which is just trying, you know, you build one story and you tell the same story in the same way to all different audiences. And you're sort of not realizing that it may not be landing as well in different groups. And so being able to sort of really, I think, to my earlier point, be comfortable asking people if it's working. You know, one common rule of thumb that I use is if I feel like I or my team is getting the same questions over and over, it means we're probably not doing a good job of telling a story about that one thing. So whether you are building a new feature and if people keep asking, why are we building this again? There's probably some storytelling there that needs to happen to sort of explain to people the why or, you know, why is this more important than something else? If you're getting those questions a lot, there's some prioritization storytelling that you need to sort of go do with a sort of your team. So... What about you, Sumeya? Any common mistakes that you've seen? And do you want to plus one on any that Ariel has seen? Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree about the one about speaking too much. And and that goes in line with, you know, giving too much also. So the part I always get concerned with is the content, the amount of content, because we want to cover all our bases. And we want, for example, to hit every piece in a framework. I've seen pitches from people that I've worked with that basically try to tick the box for each one of them. And it just takes away from the message. And so I I always start with do a simple story that sounds human, that allows you to tell that, to make your case to your grandmother if she was sitting in front of you. Start with simple and then build on it and make it more complex. It's harder to take something that's already complex and make it simple. It's easier the other way around. So start lean and then build on, which is a basically a, a principle that all of us product managers believe in, I, I believe, uh, or most of us do, and make that apply to your communication as well. That's the only one I have to add. All right. It's time for Red and my favorite moment any controversy, sometimes you just got to ask. So Sumeya or Ariel, any controversial opinions as it relates to storytelling that you would like to either start a debate with your peer here or um, get some validation on your maybe a controversial opinion on storytelling? Well, I think this was controversial a way back, but it has been debunked over the past, uh, you know, five or 10 years. And that's the dichotomy of either use data or tell stories. And I think we now all understand that you use data to tell a story and you basically need enough of both. And just separating them doesn't make sense. Just putting data on a slide that doesn't tell any kind of story is not something that an effective or a great product manager would do anyway. But I think there was a point in time where people would make the argument of, oh yeah, I just show them the data. 
and the data will tell the story. And that's not necessarily true. So I love that we have made that journey, you know, as, as an industry, as a as practice or as practitioners. And now we bring the two of them together, whether the data is quantitative or qualitative, there's always a way to tell that story. See, that's not fair, Sumaya, because you just said both are needed. And I think anyone can agree. And if we're going to try to draw some blood in this battle royale, we got to mix it up a bit. So I'm going to ask Jeff with permission. (laughs) You can't have both. If you had to choose either qualitative or quantitative data, you cannot have both. This is a hypothetical question, but unfortunately, some people in the product world experience this through lack of tooling or management request. Which one would you choose and how come you chose that one? And I'm actually going to start with Ariel first and then see, Sumay, you would agree or break out the uh, primordial fake fistcuffs and and figure out if you can uh, object to that. So Ariel, what's your thoughts on that? If you could choose one. Oh man, this is a bloodbath. This is like a good question. In this hypothetical world of you have to pick one, my instinct is to pick the anecdotes and the data because I think the way I process it is that anecdote is likely coming from a customer It's likely coming from an end user and will generally tell me that there's at least a problem. The data will help me know how big of a problem that is, how important to prioritize it. But if if I just follow the anecdotes itself, I'm at least going to solve the problem for one customer. And then hopefully that is a lot more problems for other customers and therefore the impact is greater. So I would pick anecdotes and the qualitative over the quantitative if I had to. Oh boy, we got an answer here. Now the question is, Sumeo, would you agree or disagree with that decision for yourself? I'm going to use the other side of the coin just to add some some spice to the conversation. So I would use, anytime I can use quantitative data, I will. And the way I would put it together would tell a story. I mean, whether if we're talking about a presentation, choosing the the numbers and, and putting them together in a specific way to tell that story, I think can be really powerful. If we're talking about an email, the same, or if I'm talking about them, I would just use the numbers within that story. I like using quantitative data whenever I have it. Unfortunately, at least in my enterprise, it's not always possible. Quantitative data requires a lot of times for you to have uh, statistical significance. It requires time, the element of time. And those are all constraints that uh, sometimes make it necessary to, we- to use qualitative measures. But I'm going to stick with my guns and stick with quantitative. The quant-qual battle royale has begun, Jeff. The mic is back to you. Curious what we do with this. And- I know what we're going to do with it. We're going to turn it back to you, Red, to invite the audience to either ask questions that will help them understand the quantitative versus qualitative data debate or to chime in. I think we could welcome some people to express their point of view here in front of Ariel and Sumeya, risking, one, it's being recorded, and two, either one of them might smack them down with a story that shows them otherwise. I don't know how that one would be. <laughs> anyway, Red. I think that Red, it's your turn to do this thing. <laughs> all right. All right. We're, we're going to break out the uh, proverbial qualitative, quantitative hammer of justice. If you are someone who has a question or wants to join in on that battle royale of customer data, please, this is how you do it. At the bottom of your screen, there's a little hand. It looks like a little high five on top of a notebook. You clip on that 
you can come right to the stage. Just make sure one of two things. You have a photo of yourself. And most importantly, you're someone in the business and product world. So Jeff, Sumeya, Ariel, I'm sorry if you're a professional biker and you want to geek out on Peloton. This isn't the place or time to do it. If you're a dentist and you want to talk about a bright smile, I still probably wouldn't let you up on stage. I'm sorry. Just not my way. So if you uh, have questions, we're going to open it up. That being said, while we're waiting for folks to come up on stage and raise their hands, we also have a Slack channel. So if you are someone who is more into wanting us to represent your questions or you're uncomfortable, 100% go into that Slack channel. So I haven't seen any hands raised just yet, Jeff. So I believe we're waiting for people to just really come up with powerful questions. This happens every single week. So I'm going to have to say, while we're waiting for people to jump up, Samia, you brought up a really interesting point. At your organization, have this hard time of collecting the quantitative data. What is something people out there should do if they are struggling to get the quant they need if, again, they're a pro-quant product manager? And again, this is a question to Samia. But if anyone else wants to jump on stage, please raise your hands and we'll invite you on up. Yeah, absolutely. There are a lot of things to do, but the primary thing to do there is observation. So that's the primary method I use and I like. It includes things like interviews. It includes observing people as they do or behave or take action on the thing you're trying to solve for, improve or optimize. It includes looking at, you know, what those actions or what that customer journey looks like. One for one person, for a hundred people, whatever data you can get your hands on. And I think over time, what we notice is that, you know, whether you talk to five people or 20 people, you start seeing trends that matter. And you just build from there. So that's usually my approach. That's a very healthy approach. I think that can be applied for both categories. So I'm going to defer, if it's okay, to be our first taker of the evening for today, Tuesday. And if you're in Seattle, it is a cloudy day. And Tanika, you are bringing the sunshine with your question. Red, before we do, I just have to Uh share Uh a few words about who is gracing us on this stage. So the Product Management Center has launched the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator, which has a goal to empower 100 professionals from historically marginalized communities to get their first product management job by 2022, June 2022. And we opened it up and we didn't really do a lot of marketing because we're just kind of figuring it out as fast as we can. And our guest here on stage got on her megaphone and blasted it out to so many people that we have some fantastic future product leaders, thanks to Tanika, who has just been tirelessly collecting resources for helping people in tech. And she found our resource and shared it. And I'm so grateful that she did because we have several product leaders in this accelerator, thanks to Tanika. So sorry, I just had to give you credit for all you do for the community and for helping the Product Management Center here at the University of Washington. Now, Red, it's back to you to give back to Tanika. (laughs) Well, there's no pressure there, Tanika, with that grand, grand introduction. And again, it's so cloudy, but the clouds have parted ways for the sunshine of your question. So please, without further ado, and no pressure from Jeff, what's your question to the stage? How can we help you? Hi, no, I was gonna, um, there was a question on how do you work with qualitative or quantitative data and product? And I think it, it can be really hard, but I don't know if anyone else does this. So I actually take every moment 
of doing a product demo and leverage that to do a two-question somewhat survey to get more qualitative data. And then I also leverage testing or UAT to get more quantitative data. So a lot of the time I find we don't necessarily get enough quantitative data because we demo the product, but we're kind of getting the feedback and spitfire just coming at us very fast. And, you know, we might have someone that's trying to take notes, but it's not necessarily captured in a fashion that's digestible for everyone. So what I've learned is when we do product demos or what I call customer demos, at our customer summit, what we do is I actually started doing a survey that will pop up as I'm speaking. I really like the advice on storytelling and definitely taking a lot of tidbits there, but I try to incorporate the audience or whoever's watching the demo with questions that they may have, but trying to incorporate any questions that I think would be helpful for our team. So, and specifically, I'm a data science product manager and I want to know who's using it, who wants it, who's looking for these opportunities, who just doesn't have the resources to deploy these products, but they need resources. So I'm I'm incorporating those questions into the demos and having conversations with individuals while we also get the chat flowing, especially during COVID, you know, everything's virtual. So I found that has been the best way for me to get quantitative data. And it's actually been a lot better to talk to. Well, hold on, Tanika, I'm confused in a good way. To me, you use the word surveys and live polling and feedback Yet you conflated that with quant. That is qual from what I'm hearing. I'm sorry. Yeah, (laughs) I added with the quantitative data. So that's the hardest part is getting qualitative data because people are taking meeting minutes during the demo and, and everyone's notes get lost. So the survey data is open. There's an open text, which is more qualitative. And we use NLP to dice through that and get all of the qualitative inputs out of that. But then we also have a quantitative component that we use for not only products. So we want the product metrics. So how often is this product used? Do we have downtime? Are there any bugs? What are uh, the defects looking like? See, see now like you're that. doing what Sumeya said earlier. You gotta, you get, you're doing both. That I mean, by the way, that is wonderful you're doing both. But you got to be able to choose one. If you had to side with either Ariel Sumea, this is a point system here, and they are battling it out for qual versus quant, which one would you choose? Those open-ended responses that you're doing NLP with, or are you just going to side with the data that tells you what customers are doing, but not why? I'm taking the sentiment analysis <laughs> with the open responses because people feel what other people feel. So if I tell you this organization was very much, they felt impacted by this data model that we incorporated within their process. They feel relieved that they don't have to come into work, run this script every day because it's automatically running for them. They saved 20 hours of work, which I know is quantitative, but they saved this work, but now they're able to really commit and focus and be more strategic in other areas. They feel less stressed. People relate to that versus if I come in and I say, look, this new script will save your organization $20,000 every month. By implementing it, it saves 12 hours a day. People are like, oh, yada, yada, yada. Okay. But you actually give okay. the billing so, Tanika, just, just to be fair, you chose Qual. Ariel, for the win here, first point goes out. 
I will say, Sumaya, you could defend the uh, whole approach towards sentiment analysis. But Ariel, what, do you, what are your thoughts on this one for round one? Is Tanika onto something great here? Do you do something similar with your own lifestyle in terms of how you product manage? The mic to you. Yeah, I think I, I think Tanika is spot on. And I love how you sort of organized and thought about sort of bringing a little structure to qualitative data. I think that's one of the, the dings that qualitative gets is that it's sort of like, oh, you just talk to a random person and therefore there isn't a lot of value there. But I think if you can start to bring a little structure to that, I think it starts to become a lot more powerful. And so I'm definitely supportive of Tanika's points and the tipping the favor, the, the scale and the favor of qual data. I used to remember one of the things I used to do in my time when at Amazon was thinking about our post-purchase experience is I would often go read Twitter to figure out what people said about their experience tracking packages on Amazon. And more often than not, they were spot on on the things we needed to go do. And we would then go look at the data to help us sort of make sure we were right. But if I had to pick one, I would go read a lot of Twitter posts over sort of doing the data. Okay. So we've got Twitter posts. We got live events uh, polling from surveys. Tanika, you just stoked the fire and put a beautiful point in Ariel's direction. Don't worry, Samaya, you might have a chance because guess what? We have Tanmay who was here last week while you were in the Amazon. He was helping us ascend to the top of the mountain with that beautiful jacket of product knowledge. So, Tanmay, the mic is now to you, Tanika. Thanks for joining us on stage. Sorry, Red. I just have to – we have to take a moment to acknowledge your your metaphors or what's what they're called. But it's good to have it's, you back, Red. Sorry it's okay. Just, it's okay. I'm sorry to call these Red. Red Proverbs. We're going to leave it there. So, Tanmay, welcome back, buddy. First of all, before you ask a question, the first thing and most important is – Whose side are you on, qual or quant? And then obviously, contributions or questions right after that. First of all, Fred, thank you so much for that introduction. I love your fascination about my orange jacket. I think I'm just going to send you that Columbia jacket link so you can get one for yourself. All right. Now, coming back to our discussion, I think personally, I have been a digital product manager for Morgan Stanley, and I have been uh, responsible for running experiments and finally choosing those experiments for to convert that particular experiment to an idea and to a product. And while running these experiments, sometimes you don't really have that data. And it's, it's very difficult to make that decision just based on your quantitative data. So oftentimes I took help of I took help of interviews, focus groups, some uh, survey results and so on to get ideas from my stakeholders, from my users, to pick their brain, and then based on that, define certain areas where I can run those experiments. So the short answer is I am on the, I would, as a product manager, I would prefer to start with qualitative data. And once you have the initial prototype there, then you can start collecting the data. So I would like to back this statement with an example. I was working on a product which was never launched with, within my firm. And then no one really knew how this product needs to be built, how that needs to be used by our stakeholders. And it was a kind of client-facing product. Now, in this case, since it was super vague for us to uh, define how exactly we are going to start capturing this information because we didn't really have any data for that. So we ran some surveys, we did some market research, and based on that, it was kind of a qualitative data which collected. And based on that, we launched our phase one. And once phase one went live, after that, we started collecting the quantitative data as well, where we defined certain metrics, KPIs, where we had certain baseline, which you could compare against. And then we could start measuring the success of 
each function and each iteration. So hey, to um, me, to me, I, I don't want to lose you on it for a second. I do have to interrupt though, only because I see some gloves coming out here. Sumeya being the defender of all things quant, we heard something you mentioned, which was you chose qual for an early stage product. But for Sumeya, who mentioned quant, at least taking that side of the coin, Sumeya, so I'm not picking on you. But would you agree that early stage products, it's better for qual? Or are you going to still defend that quant at that early stage is the reigning, reigning source of data? <laughs> I love it. You know, uh, the more we go down this road of like separating the two, the more foolhardy this whole thing, <laughs> the more foolish it starts sounding to me. Uh, and I'll tell you why, Red, because the reality of the situation is for us PMs, we use whatever data we can get our hands on as quickly and as efficiently as possible. And that speed is balanced with the risk tolerance we have. So sometimes you are going to go with a hypothesis that you have an insight on based on no data. It's just an insight. Maybe let's say you've been in that vertical or industry for a long time and you can't actually write down, I talked to Rebecca and Rebecca said X, Y, Z, or I did a survey and survey said X, Y, Z. And just depending on your risk tolerance, You'll go ahead and have a quick MVP or a quick solution out there that you then test. So th there is that option. I just want to put that out there. But like I said, the reality is you're going to use whatever you have, and it's only balanced. This choice of qualitative versus quantitative, I think the two decision markers for it are, one, what does your audience or your stakeholders or your investors really need to be convinced? That's one. And then the second one is, what is your risk tolerance for being right? Like, what kind of bet is this? If the bet is big, for example, in my work with the Space Force, <laughs> quantitative ruled. But in By the way, did you hear that voice, <laughs> Jeff? Did you hear that tonation? She basically said quant ruled. But you, you heard that, like, Ariel, I... I'm just saying, that was epic. Quant rules. I'm writing it down. I'm printing the t-shirts. We're getting the hats. Red, you are trying so hard, and Sumeya is trying her best to fight against this whole dichotomy of either quant or qualitative. I want to turn to Ariel, if you don't mind, Red, and just get a sense from him as well. How do you determine, I don't want to keep going down the dichotomy necessarily, but how do you determine what to lean more on? Are there any frameworks or any sort of rules of thumb that you've kind of decided when to lean more on quantitative data versus qualitative data? Um, that's a great question, Jeff. And I, will, I, I want to plus one Sumeya's point about the best PMs get the data that they have available and know sort of the blind spots of that data, whatever it is, if it's qual, if it's quant, they sort of know how to sort of process it. I, you know, I think one, one part about sort of qual versus quant is oftentimes, I think when you're starting on solving a problem and you haven't solved that problem well, you're sort of getting your V1 out. Usually the qual data will tell you the big problems to solve pretty quickly. It will say, Hey, you know, I, and we should, I, I don't have a good hypothetical example, but like, we want to go solve this. Okay. If you go do talk to a few different customers, you sort of go read what's happening. Usually the big problems surface really quickly. I think where it becomes harder is as you sort of are going from your V1 to V2, I think is where the quant becomes really important to sort of understand, okay, we now have data. We now understand what's going on. What are the different places where we need to go invest, where are assumptions that we made using the qual data off or not? So, 
That's very helpful as far as input is concerned. And Tanme, I don't want to interject. I know we want to leave room for folks on stage here. So, uh, Ariel, thank you for that one. We have, I believe, a question chiming in from the events channel in our Slack group. So, uh, Jeff, it's okay. I'd like to read that one out loud. And by the way, we're up to 966 members. So if you're someone who wants to join our Slack, rock on. This is coming from Justin K. If you're in a Slack group, you can see their last name. It sounds like it may not really matter what PM likes as qualitative versus quantitative, because if a person in higher authority is questioning priority using the data they prefer, that's what trumps all. We call those the hippos, right? The highest paid person's opinion. Are you finding that's true, Ariel or Sumea? Do you see like whether you choose qual or quant, someone higher up can just smash it with their own data set? Or are you going to stand by yours and say, no, mine's powerful enough to turn them away? I usually try to, if, if I know the leader and I know what they lean more towards to, if it's sort of, you know, they have a strong preference to one or the other, I usually will lead with that side of the coin in the argument. I think it's a sort of back to storytelling. You got to know your audience. And if your audience is looking for the quant data first, I usually will lead with that. But if I believe that the qualitative data really matters in telling the full story, I will bring that to the table as well and say, you know, I also want to highlight a few of sort of the anecdotes we've had or a few of sort of the examples that either are in support of the data or actually counter the data. And it may explain why we're doing something different than what the sort of quant data is. So I think you really have to lead with you know, you have to play to your audience a little bit here and be comfortable bringing your the other side of the coin as well to the equation. Very pragmatic. And speaking of the other side of the coin, Samaya, I saw you come off mute. What would you add to that? I just wanted to add that typically when I have to say no to executives, I have to back it up with a lot of quantitative data. It just makes the conversation a lot easier and it's something that I have an over-reliance on, frankly. But I also wanted to mention something that Chris Chestnut actually brought up to my attention. If you join us, Chris, this exact argument of data versus instinct or versus market research and conversations has come up recently in the transition between two storied CEOs. Chris, you want to talk about that? Yeah, thanks, Samaya. I was just side-chilling with Samaya talking about an article I was reading this week about Disney um, and The Hollywood Reporter and the transition between Bob Iger, who has been the Disney CEO for 15 years, and Bob Chapek coming in to be the new CEO starting last year. And how I think there's a little bit of a rub there between these two CEOs because Bob Iger has always been heavily creative, all about creativity, has always started or, uh, yeah, has always said Everything starts with creativity, and Bob Chapek has come in and is formerly the guy who was previously over, I think, all the parks, um, and has, has always been hardcore about data and has proclaimed Disney to be a data-driven company now. So it's a really interesting article uh, about those two perspectives that you can check out on The Hollywood Reporter, but I, I just was thinking about that and, and trying to understand and look at data in healthy ways and, and figure out when to use it and when not to use it. That article mentions Bob Iger saying, saying a couple couple projects they've worked on, like Black Panther, Coco, Saint chi and The Legend of Ten Rings. None of those would have ever happened if they strictly looked at data. So it's just really interesting. I encourage everyone to uh, read it and, and try to glean what you can from it as whoa, far as they don't know what not to. Chris, you just came up on stage by the invite of Sumea, and here you are defending qualitative data from her contender here. This is another point for Ariel, what I'm hearing is another qualitative data point. Am I hearing that correctly or am I crazy? Uh, I think you might be hearing it 
uh, correctly, and you might be crazy. That's possible, right, <laughs> Turin? All right, Jeff, the stage is yours. I'm out of here. <laughs> okay, well, I want to be sensitive to the time. Chris, stay on stage. We're going to dig into that more. But Jaya, you've been waiting incredibly patiently to position your question. So without further ado, knowing we're getting close to the hour, what is the question? What did you want to add? Thank you. I'm just sitting in amusement with the conversation. I appreciate the energy that you're bringing. So thanks for having me on stage. Not much of a question, but what's resonating with me, if I may? If something's resonating with you, I would say just keep it under a minute only because of the time, but rock it out. Let's go. Make it as qualitative or quantitative as you want. Wink. I love that. For sure. And I'll do that. Um, so my perspective and what I'm seeing is I go back to my my MBA professor who helped me with my dissertation. He's a professor of strategy and behavioral science, Cheng Wei Liu. He's done a lot of work on the study of chance and quantifying that. And so he always used to start responses with, it depends. You're going to hate me for this, but it depends. And what does it depend on? It depends on where you're at in the maturity of your product, what you already know and what you're trying to do. So the things that resonated with me that I heard from Sumeya, from Ariel, from Tanmay, very much was if you're in a discovery phase, like you don't know the problems you want to solve, then learning from your users what they're trying to do, what the last time felt like when they tried to do something really brings about context that you need to understand how you might be able to even find opportunities and find the right fit. Where it defers, where quant rules is if you're in a delivery state, let's not forget that product management is not always about building. It's about fixing too. So think about root cause analysis and you know what you need to do to find out what's causing an issue and the impacts, and then finally be able to solve the problems to the users that are impacted by your issue. So definitely on the different spectrums, it depends. Qualitative at the early stages, perhaps more quantitative, the more you know. Thank you. Wow, what a mediator. Everybody, it's not a fight. It's not a war. Everybody's right. Sounds like a PM to me, by the way, Jeff. That is literally what happens every time we need a ball back. <laughs> they have a way to influence stakeholders and bring people onto a common vision, which is harmony and happiness for our customers. Thank you, Jai. I appreciate that. And I, I agree this root cause and thinking through the root cause is, is really critical. We've talked a lot. We kind of meandered from storytelling into data. We talked about the data we should be using in storytelling, but I also think it's a larger debate about the data we should be using and analyzing it and seeing what biases there are in it. Because I, I can't imagine that if they trusted the data, they wouldn't have invested in those films, that they were using the right data. So that's a question for another day as to what data do we find and how do we find it and how do we make sure uh, that it's telling the true picture. But Ariel, any concluding thoughts on storytelling and how you weave in quantitative and qualitative data into that story? The floor is yours to kind of, what do you want to leave people? Yeah, I, you know, I, I'd say I think on storytelling, just keep practicing, know that it's sometimes you're going to be in front of an audience that's really uncomfortable and you just got to sort of figure out your way through it. And every time you tell the story, you're getting better, whether you know it or not. And I'll leave in the in our bloodbath or quant versus qual, there's this uh, Bezos quote, Jeff Bezos quote that I remember that I wanted to make sure I remember correctly. He said, the thing I have noticed is when the anecdotes and the data disagree, the anecdotes are usually right. There's something wrong with the way you're measuring it, which I think is something that holds really true to me and sort of why I think I leaned a little more into the qual than the quant. Great quote. Thank you so much for being here today talking about storytelling. 
Uh, Sumeya, any concluding thoughts about the bloodbath that Red tried to stoke or your take or any concluding thoughts you want to leave the audience with today? <laughs> Always a pleasure. And I am so happy that Ariel won this argument or or fight. I think we all win when we can nuance the conversation and we can pay attention to minorities or to numbers that don't necessarily uh, have the same weight or the same quantity as others. So this is a good thing. Also wanted to very quickly, I got pinged by a couple of people about the link to the Hollywood Reporter article. I just posted it on my Twitter, which is linked in my bio. But in terms of storytelling, I love Ariel's point around practicing and keep doing it. Every opportunity as a PM, you're communicating to your team. Every opportunity you have, even in your sprint planning or iteration planning or in, you know, talking to your engineers about a new thing that needs to be built, even before you get to, you know, that pitch that you're presenting to the executive team or to creating that RFAQ or whatever that document you have to create. Even before that, treat every interaction you have as an opportunity to experiment, to practice your storytelling. Find a framework that works for you, and then don't be rigid with it. Every situation you're in is going to be different. And then the final thing, as in with every single story, pay attention to your audience because where it lands and how it lands and the outcome that you actually want to get out of it is highly dependent on who they are. And you want to be able to communicate effectively to them, whether it's a story or an email or a, a set of slides, etc. All right. Sumeya stole. I was going to turn to Ariel for two bullet points. Ariel, I'm actually going to just do it anyway, because I know you might be repeating what Sumeya said, but repetition is an important part of storytelling. Make sure it sticks with people. Uh, what are two takeaways you want to add to this? Uh, yeah, very quickly, I think uh, know your audience and adjust your st story for that audience. And then the second one is get feedback often and early on whether your story is achieving its desired outcome. Back to an old PM uh, requirement that always know what your desired outcome is. Uh, and that affects not only what you build, but also the story you tell to get it done. Uh, Red, it's great to have you back. You tried your best at controversy. Any concluding thoughts from this conversation you want to share with the audience? I would just recommend that you connect with Ariel and Sumeya. They represent not people who wanted to battle it out, but ultimately people that want to give back to the community. So if you're not in the Slack group, if you want to find them on LinkedIn or Twitter, these are what we consider to be heroes to the product management world. And I'm honored to share a stage with both of you. Thank you both so much. Awesome. Thank you, Red. So thank you, everybody, for joining us today. I have some concluding thoughts before I remind you that you could join us next week, every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific time, or download How to Succeed in Product Management on your favorite pod app. It's everywhere, right, Red? Thanks to Apptemptive. You could download this anywhere you want. That's correct. Uh, I don't take promos. <laughs> I'm just here to support the community. But if you want to shout me out, that's cool, too. <laughs> yeah, Red and Aptemp have made it possible. Um, but I just wanted to conclude with the gratefulness with which Ariel, Sumeya, and Red have given their valuable time to enrich the lives of diverse PMs. That's what the Product Management Center is all about. We want to enrich the lives of PMs, diverse PMs, and we also want to empower PMs to succeed driving innovations that are inclusive to diverse audiences. We have 46 people in the cohort of the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator 
They have been carefully vetted by product managers from Google, Amazon, Microsoft, Tesla, and Salesforce. They have been vetted. They are having, they're in 10 weeks getting training on how to develop innovations that are inclusive to diverse audiences, and they are ready to work for your company. These are professionals. Some of them are students, but most of them are working professionals ready to transition into product management. They're professionals from historically marginalized communities who will make the world better through product. So my ask for you in this concluding, tell a story about, actually, I can't really bring it back to storytelling. My story is that I really think this is important from an economic opportunity standpoint and from a bettering humanity through the products that these individuals will build and also the companies, they're going to really help create products that are innovative and inclusive to diverse audiences. And I want you to hire them. So connect with me, find out how to volunteer with the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator, get your company on board to hire these people or sponsor this program so we can continue to offer it next year and beyond. But that's my big ask and concluding thoughts. And my last concluding thought is, this was fun. Thank you, everybody. And we will see you or hear you next week.